Hi, everyone, and welcome to Remaking Tomorrow, a series of conversations about the future of teaching and learning. I'm Ryan Rodzeski, here with Greg Baer, and we're the co-authors of When You Wonder, You're Learning, Mr. Rogers' Enduring Lessons for Raising Creative, Curious, Caring Kids. This is a podcast powered by Remake Learning, a network that ignites engaging, relevant, and equitable learning in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. On today's episode, we're talking with Valerie Hannon, an author and education leader working to transform learning around the world. Valerie is the co-founder of both Innovation Unit and the Global Education Leaders Partnership. She is a senior advisor to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which you might know as OECD. And she's also the co-author of several books, including Future School, Learning a Living, and Thrive, The Purpose of Schools in a Changing World. Valerie Hannon, welcome to Remaking Tomorrow. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here and an honor to be asked. Valerie, it is joyful to be here with you, and everyone should find those books of which you are the incredible co-author. And as I think about your books, at the center of so much of your work is the need, as you put it, to tell a very different story about education, one in which a well-defined purpose is at the center. So what do you mean by that? What's the dominant story today, and how does that story fall short? The whole issue of purpose and telling a different story arises, really, from a sense of profound frustration, almost desperation. You heard in my bio there that I I founded something called Innovation Unit. We were committed, we are committed to fostering innovation within learning systems. And the frustration of making so little progress in systemic terms, not amongst educators and individual institutions, but in terms of the broader picture of moving to scale, getting systems to shift. And this was a deep puzzle to me because so plainly it seemed The outcomes that we currently have are insufficient, inadequate and inequitable, and we could do so much better. And I couldn't understand why the education system, perhaps more than any other that we enjoy in our social lives, is so resilient and so resistant to shift. It was almost like an epiphany, I kid you not, that the real issue is that we are stuck with an implicit narrative, a story about who we are and what we're trying to do in our societies and in education that holds us in a kind of iron grip almost, that the old purpose of education fits with the old system, which emerged out of the 19th century and got dug in in the 20th. And that story, that narrative is all the more powerful for being kind of tacit and unexplicated. And you say, well, what's the basis of the story? As societies, we invest in education because it makes us more prosperous, measured, by the way, by GDP, which is a really lousy measure. So that's why we're prepared to invest tax dollars in it. And for individuals, it makes them more successful. Success defined, by the way, as money, fame and power. And it's an individualistic effort and fits with the American dream, really, doesn't it? You know, through education, you make it, you make your own life. It's not a collaborative, cooperative effort. It's about you having sharper elbows and making it out of the working class, maybe, and into better jobs, higher social status. And in terms of the further sort of set of value propositions, the first is that getting to college, getting to university is the real key performance indicator. If you haven't got a college degree, let's face it, basically your second class. And it's the key indicator for institutions as well. How many kids you get into college is what you put across your masthead so parents know they're onto a good thing. Now, when you lay it all out like that, it's ugly. 
most people would say, oh, you know, come on, we are into citizenship, we're into personal development and so forth. But the real underpinning propositions, I would argue, are those the ones that I've set out. As long as that sort of implicit, tacit purposes, that story holds sway in the public imagination, so too does everything else follow in terms of how we teach and what we teach. My contention is we need a different narrative. Valerie, it's interesting that you bring up that deep-rooted individualistic narrative, because I do think there's been an attempt to get past that. Often when you ask folks what school is for, what learning is for, you'll get the sort of traditional response, school is to prepare you for a career, it's to discover what you're good at, to become a well-rounded person, and so on. And then there's the somewhat more progressive answer that says schooling is about learning how to learn, and you take issue with that. Why? I do. What people say when they're asked about it in that way, that they will often say, oh, and I want my kid to be happy and to be a good citizen and so forth. But you know what? That's really at the margins. It's not the core purpose. So I do take issue with the notion that the purpose of schools is learning how to learn. My view on this has been shaped, actually, going back to an American author, Clay Christensen, who he wrote a really influential book a while back, I'm sure you all know it, Disrupting Class in which he analyzes the tools of social innovation and indeed product innovation. Really, if you want to make progress on innovating, you have to ask of a product or a process or a system, what is the job of this system, process or product? And I want to ask that question of learning and learning systems. And it's completely inadequate to say just learning how to learn. We need education to do a job for humanity and for the planet which might just get us through to a livable future in the 22nd century, because right now that's on the line. That's what we need education to do. And just saying learning to learn as though it's kind of value-free and it doesn't matter what you learn. The Nazis were great learners, terrific learners, and they collaborated really well. And wow, were they creative problem solvers. You know, there's an interesting quote by Fred Rogers, who is someone, of course, we cite all the time. He says, what matters isn't how a person's inner life finally puts together the alphabet and the numbers of his outer life. What really matters is whether he uses the alphabet for the declaration of a war or the description of a sunrise, his numbers for the final count at Buchenwald or the specifics of a brand new bridge. And it sounds like you and he are saying the same thing about values mattering. Oh, totally. I looked at your book, but I, I don't remember that quote. And wow, how perfect is that? He's, he's nailed it. So, Valerie, let's dig in a bit more because you've written that to redefine the purpose of school, we have to revisit a very ancient question. And that is this. What makes a good life? So what makes a good life? Well, the first thing to say is it's not for me to prescribe it. It's for people to discover it. Working with colleagues who are in India and Latin America, we're looking at some really fascinating learning ecosystems. And I mention them because when we talk to them about their purposes, they're really explicit is that they're not trying to lay on to their communities what a vision of a good life is. You know, what levels of material goods or what styles of living create a good life, but rather to put them in a position to explore, and not least in terms of their cultural heritage, their geographical context, what they see as being a good life in the conditions of the 21st century. If you ask me for myself, I have learned over the last few years the imperative of really rich and rewarding and reciprocal relationships. I've learned the imperative of growing an interior life, of being able to have a sense of calm, 
not be freaked out if you're not networked the whole time and online. Sure, you need some kind of level of prosperity for a good life, I think. But, you know, how much do you need? Everyone needs to rethink that, I believe, and find the answers to those questions themselves. And they're not quite the same as the answers that Aristotle might have answered with, because, wow, are we in different conditions? Humanity stands at a kind of pivot point, a set of inflections in history, which have never been faced before. And so the concept of thriving is going to be very different. So let's think about thriving lives and thriving systems. You mentioned your research. Let's point to some examples, either in the global south or the global north, that really encourage you as we think about what's possible as we think about this future of learning that you're describing. Let me talk about a couple of the learning ecosystems we're looking at in Peru and in Colombia and the kinds of adversity that they face. I mean, when one says adversity, you immediately think poverty. And yeah, poverty is the mother of many forms of deprivation and difficulty, but it's not the only ones. And exploring with these communities the kinds of adversity that they face, already facing up to what climate change and global warming is doing to them, it's already impacting communities very profoundly. Contexts of civil war, of gang violence because of the scourge of drug-related crime, profound misogyny and sexism and homophobia. So looking at the kinds of adversity these communities are facing, the activists that we're working with recognize that just trying to improve a school system the way we did in the early 21st century is woefully inadequate. Rather, it needs everybody in the community to be engaged in the process of learning. And therefore you need to remake, as you've said, what counts as really powerful learning experience and how they integrate, how they fit together. And that can take many forms in one that we're working with. Utilising the creative arts is absolutely the heart of it. Others use different modes and methodologies. It, you know, again, it depends very much in, on the cultural context. But just focusing on the school as the object of reform and shift is for them completely and utterly inadequate. Because the culture of the family, for one thing, will overcome all of that. And the family needs to be deeply, deeply engaged in rethinking how, you know, for, for many of these families, especially in Peru, never had any experience of schooling, never been to it. Might be useful, might not. So engaging with the family as a, as a unit in which learning can be remade and rethought with the real active contribution of many other parts of the community is, is central to the concept. Thinking about learning not being confined to school, maybe beginning in school or school is a key part of it, but also you mentioned the creative arts, you mentioned family, you mentioned community. You've also been an advocate not only for getting kids out of classrooms more often, but for getting them out of indoor spaces altogether more often. Can you talk more about that? Why does it matter to get kids into nature more often too? For a whole range of reasons, it's, it's a great question. For one thing, I'm a big fan of one of the organisations you have in the States, Education Reimagined, and their whole concept of learner-centeredness. But I have a problem with the language, even though they qualify it when you dig down. For me, it's not all about us. It's not all about humanity. We have got to start to see ourselves, in my view, as part of nature and not aside from it, not its master. In that culture of dominance, of some races over others, of men over women, of humans over nature and over other species, is what has got us to the predicament that we're in now. And I really argue passionately for a change of mindset, which is actually much more in tune with indigenous insights about humanity's 
place in the overall creation. When we talk about thriving, I want to start by saying, well, the purpose of education is a thriving planet and undoing the damage we've done in violating this beautiful planet of ours and bringing it to the point of unlivability. Now, you don't fight for what you don't love and you can't love what you don't know. For so many kids, they have no experience of being in nature at all. So when we talk about the kinds of mindset shifts that we need in order to create a sustainable future, it is imperative that kids are enabled to know what it is that we are talking about and what it is that could be lost. The second point is, there's plenty of evidence now. Being out in nature, even when it's cold and wet and kind of grisly, is a profoundly powerful experience if it can be well scaffolded and supported for young people to find a sense of themselves. And one of the things that gave me great hope in researching two of my books was coming across schools who get that, who really understand it, and build into their planned curriculum opportunities for young people to engage and be deeply involved in nature over time. This is Greg Baer along with Ryan Rudzeski. We're talking with Valerie Hannon, co-founder of Innovation Unit and the Global Education Leaders Partnership. Valerie, I just mentioned two social enterprises of which you're the founder. You advise governments, you're an author, and you began your career as a teacher. So was there a moment in your teaching when you realized, you know, as much as I love these kids, as, a, as much as I love this classroom or this school, I've got to get out there and change systems or I'm going to bang my head against this chalkboard? No, it wasn't. I'd love to think that that was true and that, you know, that's kind of noble. It didn't happen like that at all. I look back on my teaching career with a sense of regret, really. I was too young. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have enough influences to show me a different way, a better way. I did the best I could. And I, I really did for, for the kids who were in front of me. But it was, a, it was a tough school. It was a tough gig. No, what happened to me was I started to read stuff and get really engaged by some of the new thinking that was coming out by my writers at that time, who I, I really hadn't encountered before. And I thought, I need to get my head around this stuff. So I took his comment and did a master's degree. And at that stage, I did start to think about systems. So I went to what in your terms would be a district. I became what in your terms would be a district superintendent up here in the north of England. I was director of education for Derbyshire, which had about 500 schools mix of rural and urban. It was during the Thatcher years, if you can remember those, so there was a lot of poverty about. And that's when, that is when, I started to think about the power of systems. And if I had to point to a real turning point, many of your listeners will know Ken Robinson and his work on creativity. Ken was an old friend of mine, and when he got asked by our Secretary of State to do a study, a research report on creativity and how we start to engender creativity in schools, he asked me as the kind of tame director of education who knew how the system worked to join the committee. And I did it. And that kind of took the scales off my eyes. And I thought, wow, I've got to get stuck into change here. I can't carry on just with systems maintenance anymore. You know, we've been having similar conversations, as you know, here in Pittsburgh about changing systems. And it's interesting, when you ask students what they want from systems, what they want from their schools, what they want from the adults around them, they, of course, have lots of ideas. But the one thing they want more than anything else is actually something you mentioned earlier. They want close, caring relationships with adults. And you've written that schools need to redesign and re-engineer the ways in which relationships are cultivated. Have you found in your work schools and systems that have found ways to do that well? 
I have, and they give me heart. The fairy who paused over my cradle did not give me the gift of optimism, and I tend to, you know, look on the dark side of things. It's a failing, I know. But one of the things that really give me hope and optimism is, is just such schools who, through their very structuring of how they use time, how they employ people, how they engage with people, put relationships at the heart of things. And they don't put it in a box called social and emotional learning. I'll give you one example of a school I work with up here in Yorkshire, and that kind of fundamental building block of the organisation is called crew, as in sailing crew. And when you join that school at 11, you become part of a crew. It's about 12 kids, about 11 or 12 kids, with one member of staff, and you stick together. You learn together, you eat together, you go on expeditions together, and you learn to support each other. And you call crew because your job as part of crew is to support each other. I've got lots of quotes in my book from the students in that school who would say things like, you know, someone else is failing, we've got to figure out what's going on with them and give them a hand. So their job is not to get better grades than the other kids in their class or their track, it's to help their crew along and through doing that, become more powerful learners themselves. The depth of the relationships that get built through that and the understanding that making and sustaining relationships is a learning task. It's not just a gift you get given <laughs> in your cradle. Actually, you can learn how to do it and you can help others learn how to do it too. And so the, the empathy that's built, the sense of belonging, the sense of community, no kid goes into that school with some kind of tragedy or problem at home that they don't feel they can share, that they have to hide. They've got some place they can go and really feel that they are supported in handling that. Now, I'm not talking, obviously, about more extreme therapeutic situations. I'm, I'm talking about ordinary life, really. And it's those kinds of approaches where people just rethink how they come together as community as a basis for powerful learning that, as I say, give me a sense of hope. Valerie, you are the co-founder of something called the Global Education Leaders Partnership, which I know Greg has been involved in. It's done some really interesting work on learning ecosystems. For our listeners who aren't familiar, could you tell us a bit about the partnership? You know, how did it form? What does it do? And what can people expect from it? It formed because a group of us became aware it's about 12 years ago that there was very little space for people who were system leaders to come together, secretaries of state, district superintendents of very large districts, mayors, I mean, people who are running systems, who got a sense that things needed to change, but didn't really get a space to explore it out of the public gaze. If you think about it, there is no training or personal development or capacity building for politicians. It's the one profession where you can go into it knowing nothing, knowing nothing and expecting to be taught nothing or to go on any kind of developmental program, although there are certain organisations trying to do something about that, like Bloomberg. However, we wanted to create a space where system leaders could come together and think about the contours of transforming education and hence the concept of a partnership. So we started in New York, 10 sets of leaders. They came as teams. They came from very varied jurisdictions. So top performing like Finland and real struggling like uh, Rio de Janeiro and everything in between. Delhi, Kentucky, Vancouver, London. And the purpose was really to dig into what might different kind of systems look like 
And what was the roadmap for getting there? What were the key ingredients and the essential elements which could be around investment in technology? It could be around different kinds of relationships with the profession. It could be around thinking differently about how to reconstruct and redesign curriculum. And it's one of those programs or partnerships which people say, well, what's the impact? And you want to say, well, I'll tell you in 10 years. You don't do a pre and post test to discover it. These things go deep. For example, I would take British Columbia, where colleagues there who were really active partners went about their massive curriculum redesign informed by the kind of thinking that they did together. We weren't teaching them, we were all thinking together about what a curriculum redesign needed to be and do and how it needed to engage learners as well as teachers and leaders. And wow, what they've come up with, I think, is one of the most progressive and interesting and empowering curricula on earth, actually. Valerie, you have so much wisdom to share, and Ryan and I think you have a whole lot of heart. So how can people find out more about the work that you're doing? Read the books. Those books are Future School, Learning a Living. Yeah, but the one I'm proudest of, and I think if any listener has had their interest piqued by what I've said, then go to Thrive. Thrive is the one that I poured my heart and soul into. It's entitled Thrive, The Purpose of Schools in a Changing World. Definitely a book that's already on my bookshelf and should be on yours too. Valerie, before we go, just one more question for you. What's one thing that parents and educators can do today to make tomorrow a more promising place for every learner? It would be easy to say, listen to your child, listen to the kid in your life. And I would start there. I think, was it the philosopher Hannah Arendt who said, the greatest gift in life is giving close attention. And I know you said one thing, but I'm going to have a second which is, don't bury your head. I want to say to people, look up. Look up what's coming down the line. And that is what we have to prepare our young people for. If only we were on a steady upward trajectory of progress, how delightful that would be. But sadly, that is not the case. And when you look up and look around you, you realise how much there is to be done. That, of course, is around climate and species extinction. That's the most urgent, but it's not the only one be understanding of what it is your kids face and then you will feel passionate about empowering them to do it and to reshape the future. Thanks again to Valerie Hannon, a global education leader and co-founder of Innovation Unit and the Global Education Leaders Partnership. She's the co-author of several books including Thrive, The Purpose of Schools in a Changing World. Remaking Tomorrow is powered by Remake Learning. Learn more at remakelearning.org.